Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Alakazam! I'm in an awful pickle. I'm king. Ooh, he pulled a sword from the stone. Ha-ha! Of course, of course. King Arthur and his knights of the round table. Round table? Oh, uh, would you rather have a square one? Oh, no. Round will be fine. <laughs> boy, boy, boy. You'll become a great legend. They'll be writing books about you for centuries to come. Why, they might even make a motion picture about you. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. So what's uh, what's our topic of conversation today? I think you should tell us. But this was your idea. This is one of those fancy Jenna ideas where it's not based on a director or a country or a, an actor or anything. It's like a theme, sort of like that Faust episode that you did a couple seasons ago. We're doing King Arthur movies. It's true. It's true. The crown has made it clear. The podcast must be perfect all the year. <laughs> a law was made a distant moon ago here. A movie watching cannot be for naught. And there's a legal limit to the show here in Camelot. The Patreon forbidden to non-members. And bootleg bond every seventh on the dot. By order, every film must be remembered in Camelot. Camelot, Camelot, I know it sounds a bit bizarre. Are you ready for me to stop? But in Camelot. <laughs> it's only a model. Exactly. Yeah, we're watching King Arthur movies. Why? Why not? I felt like it. I wanted, here's the thing. I thought Camelot is a movie that I enjoy. Apparently, I learned some things about people involved in this podcast, but we'll get to that. And I thought, there's got to be. Camelot was such a smash hit. There's got to be a bunch of Camelot Arthur movies. And it turns out there there was. A few. Kind of. Not quite <laughs> enough to fill the episode, but we, we made up for it. But the 60s is the, the Camelot era. You know, the Kennedy administration was, uh, was our own little Camelot. And so uh, it's important to the 60s, this King Arthur guy. Yeah, and I was thinking, like, let's trace that back. Now, I'm a, you know, like people get really into King Arthur, and and while I I am way more into Faust than I am King Arthur, I am a big fan of the Once and Future King. I could be a bigger fan. There's plenty more. I have never, I never went back to read Sir Thomas Mallory, which mm. I guess is where our story kind of begins here, as far as tying this back into how Camelot and Arthur end up being a theme about the 60s that is pretty specific to be calling out. Yeah, I mean, I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, so obviously I'm a King Arthur fan. I'm not sure many or any of the movies that we watched for this episode really scratched that itch for me, but I still love the Arthurian legends, and uh, I hope we get to talk more about uh, Arthur himself than some of these movies that we watched, but... Uh, <laughs> Why don't you go back to the great popularizer of the Arthurian legend, Sir Thomas Mallory, and tell us how we got to the 60s from there. 
okay, I traced this out, guys. And imagine me in my basement that I don't actually have. It's kind of like the Alamo. Imagine me in the basement of the Alamo. And on one hand, here we have Sir Thomas Mallory, who sat down and compiled every tale that he could find about King Arthur, Guinevere, Lancelot, and all the Knights of the Round Table when he was in jail, question mark, potentially. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then in 1485, he published Le Mot d'Arthur, which is the original this is not the like it's not the original original right there's a there's a further back here that bart i think knows a bit more about than i do but arthurian myth is set during the fifth and the sixth century and this is written in 1485 so already we've got some lost in translation some some punching up of stories we've got visions of arthur as a, a medieval tale which is not entirely accurate mm -hmm. Yeah, it's part of why you can put Robin Hood and King Arthur in the same universe when they clearly were not. Richard the Lionhearted was you know, 1180 or something like that, and that's so that would be Robin Hood's time. And, and King Arthur, if there was a historical King Arthur, would have been like 500 AD. So uh, there's a lot of anachronism going on here. And just a lot of discrepancy in, in how these tales actually go. Like there are certain things that once Mallory put it down on paper is, have sort of stayed that way ever since. And there are things that he changed and you know, things that he invented himself. And that's part of what's so fun about King Arthur is you can do whatever you want with all the different elements and uh, you know, re recombine them however you want, create brand new characters that didn't exist in any of the Arthurian legends. Like we'll see with some of these movies we watch and uh, yeah, just you can, you can play fast and loose with him because he's not a real person. Well, he, he may be actually based on some you know, ancient King, but probably nobody was ever named Arthur who fought the, the Saxons in the sixth century. Like Colomartha. What's that from? Hard Day's Night. Cut to the 1930s, where author T.H. White, Terrence Hanbury White, Tim, as his friends called him, randomly picked up Mallory and found himself way more engrossed with the material than he expected. He was uh, reportedly undergoing analysis at the time. This was after, uh, I think... Uh, a not so great childhood and then going through world war ii and all the characters that he was reading in, in mallory's text seemed to line up perfectly with freud so he published the sword in the stone in 1938 which he considered uh, a prequel to mallory and it was a massive hit and it was written in modern english and it was set in the 14th century why not and uh it seemed to just hit the public consciousness at the right time. And then he published three more books that were then compiled together and published in 1958 under the name, the once and future King cut to 1959 where lyricist Alan J. Lerner composer, Frederick Lowe hot off of his massive success with my fair lady and playwright Moss Hart decide to adapt T.H. White's novel into a musical called Camelot, 
They recruited the likes of Julie Andrews and Richard Burton and Robert Goulet in his Broadway debut, and it was a hit. The soundtrack was number one on the charts for weeks. It won four Tony Awards, toured the country, even after the Broadway run ended. And the first shows ran about six hours long or something, I, I read. That's just like a Broadway, you know, this is like the time, this was like the heyday of Broadway where like they would come out with the first few shows and like actually listen to critics and like cut shit and change things. And and it really was this like give and take and collaborative effort, which I, which was, is kind of cool. That's like another podcast. <laughs> it's kind of neat, I think. But yes, it's, I think it, it, it shortened. I mean, actually, the movie version. Well, we'll talk about it. But anyhow, cut to November 1963. JFK has been assassinated and the country is in mourning. Jackie Kennedy speaks with journalist Theodore H. White. Note the name conspiracy question mark for Life magazine in a piece called for President Kennedy, an epilogue. And. Jackie is quoted as calling the original cast recording album one of her husband's favorites, specifically the line in the song Camelot about how, quote, don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. And she says it and it will never be that way again. Earlier in the interview, she talks about, quote, There'll be great presidents again, but there'll never be another Camelot again. For a while, I thought history was something that bitter old men wrote, but then I realized history made Jack what he was. For Jack, history was full of heroes, and if it made him this way, if it made him see the heroes, maybe other little boys will see. Men are such a combination of good and bad. Jack had this hero idea of history, the idealistic view which I quote because I think this will come back around later in the episode. Cut to October 25th, 1967. Joshua Logan directed Camelot, quickly becoming the 10th highest grossing film of 1967, nominated for five Academy Awards, winning three for score, production design, and costume design, three Golden Globes, etc., etc. Cut to 2022. Jenna Ipcar and Bart DeLauro, under the guise of a podcast about 1960s cinema, conspire to watch six films about Arthurian tales. Only five are technically Arthurian tales. <laughs> and even those are a stretch. Maybe three of these films actually have anything to do with actual Arthurian. Well, I don't know. There, there's a basis in Arthurian legends in all of these films to a greater or lesser degree. But only, I'd say three of them have much to do with what people think of as actual Arthurian legends. But we'll get into that too. But your history really was dominated by the 20th century there. You skipped a whole lot in between Mallory and and T.H. White. Who needs him? (laughs) (laughs) No Tennyson, no Christian de Troy, and all that good stuff. That's all right. None of that matters because, as I said, the people who uh, were creating these Arthurian-based movies really didn't care how closely they they stuck to the tales as they were written. So uh, to start it off, we're going to talk about a film that really has nothing to do with 
King Arthur, at least in name and in origin of the story, and that's the magic sword. directed by uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 favorite director, Bert I. Gordon. And this is based on St. George and the Dragon, but it has almost as much to do with that story as it does King Arthur. (laughs) (laughs) Our favorite guy, Gary Lockwood, Hal's first victim in, uh, in 2001 A Space Odyssey, plays... St. George, and he's an orphan who's been raised by a sorceress, played by Estelle Winwood, and he's got some magical powers of his own, or he, you know, some, some of his adoptive mother's magic has rubbed off on him a bit, and he uh, has fallen in love with this princess who lives in a castle across the lake that he's never been to, but he can see through, you know, he can look into the water and see what she's doing inside the castle. It's really pretty creepy and stalkery. But he falls in love with her while he's peeping at her bathing. And in the court, uh, he discovers that the evil sorcerer, played by Basil Rathbone, his name is Lodak, has kidnapped her and has brought her to his castle to feed her to his dragon. And uh, Sir Branton, a knight in the court... Uh, the princess's name is Helene, by the way. And her father says, uh, go and get her back, Branton. And if you rescue her, you can marry her. And George, looking in the water at what's happening in this court, says, no, I want to rescue her and marry her. So he goes to his sorceress mother and says, uh, let me go rescue this princess. And uh, she doesn't want to let him. He's not 21 yet. And she shows him all this magical stuff that she was going to give him when he was 21. And he manages to trap her and steal all like this magical sword she was going to give him, this really nice armor, and these a horse, the fastest horse in the land, and these six frozen knights, the noblest knights from six different countries who have just been frozen in this cave for hundreds of years or who knows how long and um and he takes the the knights and the sword and the horse and the armor and he goes off to rescue the princess and they have to deal with the seven curses that lodak has placed in their in the path to get to the castle they're actually traveling along with branton who is the knight that helene's king fathers you know had initially said go and rescue my daughter but it turns out that Branton is not the nice fellow that he pretends to be. Yeah, so that's so we've just got a bunch of fairly low budget, but actually pretty fun adventures trying to get uh, the princess back from Lodak and save her from the dragon, the two-headed dragon. And yeah, I, it's kid stuff, but it's actually it's it's pretty fun. I mean, before I get into what is actually Arthurian about this movie, uh, I, I want to hear what you thought of the magic sword. Is it kid stuff, Bart? <laughs> is it? Because I remember 
that nude ass lady bathing as the guy watches her. And I remember when the guy falls into the water and then he pops back up and he's a skeleton. <laughs> that would have scared the shit out of me as a child. And those two knights that get like melted by the sun. I thought that was the creepiest part. Then the sexy lady that turns into an ugly hag. Mm-hmm. That's scary. But it's been for kids who like a little bit of scariness with their adventure. It's pretty harmless. This movie is clearly for children, but at the same time, this is like the type of thing that you see as a kid and it scars you for life. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, I mean, the effects are actually kind of fun. Like, I, they're they're not realistic in any sort of way, but they're they're fun and they're like a little bit brutal. Hmm. I think. There's a funny chimp. <laughs> There's a two-headed albino guy who who lives with uh with George and his sorcerer mother. Yeah, they never explain that guy. I mean, I like Basil Rathbone as a lot of fun as the, as the sorcerer Lodak. <laughs> Which I don't is that? I don't know. I've never heard of Lodak. That is it that totally made up, do you know? I don't know that much about St. George. I mean, like, I know the, like, very British version of St. George, uh, which has nothing to do with this. <laughs> like, this movie is, like, Star Trek low budget in, in that it is both very fun, like, when you see, like, when they're going for the special effects, you know exactly how they did it, but, like, it it works. Yeah, you've got some Ray Harryhausen type effects here where you've got some rubbery monsters. The ogre in particular reminded me of, like, Sinbad or Jason and the Argonauts or something. But yeah, I mean, the original story of St. George and the Dragon is um, has to do with, there's a lottery. This dragon is uh, is terrorizing a kingdom, and there's a lottery, and, and random people are chosen to, to be sacrificed to the dragon once a month or year or whatever. And the beloved princess of the kingdom gets chosen at random, and the king says... Uh, Oh no 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 that that draw doesn't count and the the princess insists and and goes and to be sacrificed and then Saint George comes marching in with his cross on his shield and uh, the power of Jesus defeats the the dragon and you know everybody gets gets turned into Christians it's actually originally set I could have some of these details wrong but I know that the like a famous version of the story is set in Libya so he's like saving heathens with the the power of jesus and he's he's like i'll kill this dragon if you all convert to christianity so that's why he's a saint and there's like the king in this version the magic sword does seem to have his skin tinted a a bit i was a little confused by that but then i thought oh well this this story was originally supposed to be set in north africa so maybe He's supposed to be a Libyan king, but Helene, his daughter, is, you know, as white as they come. It's this very blonde princess with not much personality. With a really structured brassiere. <laughs> it's just a fun medieval fantasy adventure story, but it does manage to bring in a number of Arthurian elements, like probably just by accident because... And the people writing this were just thinking, oh, what can we bring in? What's what's medieval? What can we add to this story? And so like the six 
brave knights from different parts of the world. It's very much a, a sort of Knights of the Round Table sort of thing. You've got Sir Dennis of France, Sir Pedro of Spain, Sir Patrick of Ireland, Sir Anthony of Italy, Sir James of Scotland, Sir Ulrich of Germany. I forgot about Sir Pedro of Spain. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, really, they just exist so that uh, as, as they go through their trials to get to the princess, there's somebody, you know, there are people who can die along the way. But still, it's a very Knights of the Round Table sort of thing. And you've also got uh, George himself, who's the orphan child of royalty being raised by a magical person, which is, you know, straight out of Sword in the Stone. That really links it to Arthur. You know, and you've got the Mordred type character who the king trusts, but turns out that he's a traitor and causes the downfall of, uh, well, in this case, the Mordred character doesn't quite succeed in bringing down the kingdom. But, uh, you know, there's a, you've got your Mordred type character. And I mean, pretty much the only thing that this has in common with St. George and the Dragon is just the fact that it ends with like, the power of faith being the thing that's more powerful than magic. Like, and it, even then it's like not even, the movie doesn't feel Christian in any way. It's just sort of like an afterthought. Yeah. That's, it's just in a line of dialogue. There's clearly no faith involved in the making of this movie. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's actually, it's far more Arthurian than St. George. You've got, I mean, it's called the magic sword. So you, it's, you've got the whole Excalibur thing there. I think it's got some extra powers that uh, the King Arthur's sword doesn't uh, actually have. Like it glows when orcs are around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was fun. I, I thought this was like a cute, this actually was like a strong start. And then it sort of goes <laughs> downhill from there. <laughs> but have you seen, I guess there is a mystery science theater version of this, right? I saw that there was one, but I don't think I've seen it. I haven't seen it either. It's it's so funny. I've seen so many of them. And yet all of the ones that we've encountered for Cinema 60, I feel like I've they're like the ones that I haven't seen. So I'll have to go back and watch it. Well, next up, we have Lancelot and Guinevere. known as the sword of lancelot which is a british film from 1963 and it stars cornell wilde and it was directed by cornell wilde and it was co-produced by cornell wilde and it was co-written by cornell wilde <laughs> and uh it stars his wife gene wallace <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't realize they were a real life couple. Apparently. And uh, this one is a lot more. So, I mean, you know, it's called Lancelot and Guinevere. I think you can guess what this one is about. But um, it starts with Lancelot as uh, King Arthur's bud. It actually starts with everyone making fun of Lancelot for bathing. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, "What? look at this fruitcake. So plays a, a major role in the plot of this movie somehow. <laughs> uh, and it starts with him. It's it's Lancelot jousting basically to win Guinevere over for King Arthur. 
And it's a really brutal joust. Like you see the guy's head gets split open and it's bloody as hell. Like, and, and that's like the first hint that this movie is, is a little bit better than you think it's going to be. What? <laughs> I, I'll say more. All right. Well, the plot, anyhow, um, I, we're going to be, this is the same plot. We're going to have to say eight times as we go through this entire episode, but basically just that. He brings Guinevere home. They have a little bit of a nude bathing situation uh, in the river together. Again, for for children. It's not for children, this one. Um, and he brings Guinevere back home, and she's married to King Arthur. And she develops a crush on Lancelot, who is, you know, younger and more attractive. Barely younger. <laughs> no <Or laughs> Wild looks like he's 60 years old in this. Not my idea of a Lancelot. Not my idea of Lancelot either. Though, you know, the TH White Lancelot was was meant to be ugly. So there yeah. you go. So she ends up actually seducing him by telling him, like, oh, why are you avoiding me? And then she tricks him into saying, I love you by asking him how to how to say it in French. <laughs> Which is kind of cute. Then like the rest of this, you know, it's it's Mordred comes over and is trying to kill everyone. He comes to Camelot and Lancelot saves Guinevere but you know everyone finds out about the two of them and they gotta leave you know he spies on them <laughs> I feel like I don't know maybe it's just because I watched all these I feel like do I have to say all of this but I guess this is they all have their subtle differences they do this one's pretty straightforward though I mean like so you know Mordred spies on them and then he tells Arthur Lancelot escapes you know, Arthur is, is very hurt and Lancelot escapes. The whole castle convenes and tries to take him. Uh, Guinevere ends up being condemned to burn at the stake. And of course, Lancelot returns in time to save her. And Arthur banishes everyone. And years later, Mordred murders Arthur, which we get in a scene of Lancelot being told. And it's like literally like, P.S. Arthur's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, also Merlin died. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. And then uh, he immediately is like, oh my God, this is love, true love. Rushes to Guinevere, who is, you know, is, has become a nun. And uh, he says, now we can be together. And she says, nah, I got God. And that's the end of the <laughs> So here's the thing. Here, here's the subtleties of this version of the tale. This movie in my opinion, fundamentally misunderstands the appeal of Arthurian tales because it's all about battles and action and like masculine pride and honor. And sure, like all of that's like in the story and all, but like you're doing the characters a disservice because he's trying to mold them into the 60s man sensibility. And it's just very conservative and warmongering and it should have been more fluid and emotional. Like Lancelot, the problem with him besides, you know, this sort of, narcissistic casting of him casting himself as Lancelot he he's unconvincing because he's clearly not interested in love and I'm sorry but that's a huge part of Lancelot or women for that matter there's he he has a whole lot more chemistry with uh, Sir Tors his his sort of young squire who becomes a knight or, or something and I really you know I was hating this movie and then like he Lancelot and Taurus get all kind of flirty with each other when they go off to you know surprise the Saxons and uh I was like this this is the one thing that could turn this into a an entertaining movie 
just have these two knights have an affair and forget about Guinevere completely because Guinevere is terrible. She's Guinevere she's the awful. worst. She's so annoying in this. She's like this cliche again. It's like this really sixties style cliche female who cries and angers on her on whims and has no connection with anyone and is totally useless and then king arthur is so lame in this he's like too thoughtless i like king arthur has to be more neurotic and empathetic like empathetic to a fault like he never grieves for lancelot he doesn't even care like he's like very like you know uninterested in also uninterested in love but also very like unbothered by you know he's like uh, his pride is wounded by Guinevere cheating on him a little bit, even though he kind of knows because he's old. Like that's what's implied. It's just that he's older and he knows, wow, these young kids or something. And it's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> At, like I'm with you. Like if there had been any sort of love anywhere, like I just feel, and, and, and this is a theme that, that throughout all of these needs to come through is that, you know, Arthur isn't this sort of like masculine pride in honor like he's somebody who's he's more akin to mr spock (laughs) (laughs) than he is but like the emotional version of mr spock but it's like you know someone who's striving to be the best version of himself and striving to understand everything and like i you know the arthur that i like is the arthur who finds out about guinevere and lancelot and thinks damn, I love both of them. Like, what do I do now? You know? And then I think that that love triangle too really works only when you know that Guinevere also loves Arthur and Lancelot loves Arthur too. Maybe not romantically or maybe romantically. I'm totally cool with that version too. But love is the center of this entire, it's the center of Camelot, you know? And like, there's no love in this movie. Well, it's definitely the center of, the T.H. White version of King Arthur and Camelot, the stage play in the in the movie. But in a way, the way that Arthur kind of recedes into the background in this movie is actually a lot like a lot of the Arthurian tales that came before. Like you're following the adventures of the Knights of the Round Table and and their their loves and adventures and, and that sort of thing. Well, that's okay when if you're actually following someone. But the problem with this movie is like there's no you're not following anything but just gore. And the gore is actually kind of fun. <laughs> the only good parts of this movie are when they decide to kill some people. Yeah. Big time. And it's and it's it's actually good. Like it's done well. Like it's it's like sort of semi shocking to watch. Yeah, this is definitely I I think you said it already, but this is not a film for kids at all like between the romance between Lancelot and Guinevere that would bore children and the heavy duty gore like Guinevere splits a guy's skull open with a sword yeah (laughs) with these really fake looking wooden swords that are painted gray to look like metal swords that kind of was distracting for me I loved um I loved like uh Sir Gwen going crazy after his brother gets killed that was fun there is a sex scene reminiscent of the room (laughs) in which well like it's this like explicit post-coital sweating for guinevere and lancelot and everything's like shot through a silk canopy bed curtain (laughs) well and i'm pretty sure there's like some out of frame oral sex there too you just sort of 
get a shot yes. of her face where and Lancelot is kind of nowhere to be seen and she's getting a little little orgasmic there. She gets kind of orgasmic when she burns at the stake, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> she makes these like kind of sex noises as she's burning. Yeah, someone gets trampled to death. There's all of the, there's a ton of extras in this. Yeah, I mean, I think Cornell Wilde should stick to action because that's what he's good at. I think not long after this movie, he made um, The Naked Prey, where it's just beginning to end chasing. This guy is naked and a bunch of uh, African tribes people are chasing him to kill him. And that's pretty exciting. I mean, I think it even got a Criterion release, so... This movie, Lancelot and Guinevere, the film he did before Naked Prey, is the furthest thing from anything that uh, Criterion would ever release. But his his follow-up is worth seeing because he knows. Stick to the action. Forget about human interaction because you you don't know how to do that. Yeah, you've never had it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's okay. It's, it's really, I actually kind of thought this was, this is kind of an interesting movie. Like, I would say that if you have the chance to watch it, you should probably go see it because it's going to surprise you. But it's not a good movie. No, I found it really tedious, actually. I had a lot of trouble sitting through it. And you know, luckily, skulls would get split open occasionally and I would perk up a little bit. But it's dreary and pretty awful. I kind of I do appreciate the ending of this being so like tough shit. <laughs> And like it ends. It's like, she's a nun. Get used to it. (laughs) But it's so overblown melodramatic and there's no, like it's trying to play it up as tragedy, but there's nothing tragic about these two people. Like you couldn't care less about Lancelot and Guinevere. That's what's so strange though, is like this was clearly a vanity project and yet I just don't, I don't see any passion behind it. It's just very strange to me. Well, he's also the guy who gets naked in The Naked Prey and gets chased by the the tribesmen. So I think Cornell Wilde really did uh, like to see himself on screen. Sweating? (laughs) Sweating. (laughs) He's not a very attractive man either. (laughs) I don't actually, honestly, do we really get any attractive Lancelots in any of these films? Well, sure. When the Frenchman comes from Italy, he's very attractive. He's not on the track. But we're not there yet. We keep jumping the gun. We keep trying to jump to the end of the episode. Next film. The next film is called Siege of the Saxons, another one from movies that we watched are from 1963 but uh, produced before the Kennedys were talked about as uh, being a, a sort of Camelot but I guess the stage play was popular so that's probably why at this time you said 1960 the the stage play came out yep so I guess these movies are all sort of yeah, def- that's definitely that's why I jumped to the play is that like the play was was a hit. And, and I think that any sort of renewed interest in the 60s was it was due to T.H. White coming out in 58. They're having this re-release compilation of the Once and Future King and then having 1960 having Camelot be a hit musical. Well, the next movie trying to capitalize on the uh, 
popularity of Camelot, the stage show, uh, was Siege of the Saxons, which was directed by uh, Nathan Juren, who also did like Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, a lot of, you know, sci-fi classics. And it's it's a pretty solid little adventure movie that's as much Robin Hood as it is King Arthur. It starts with Arthur, uh, he's not doing so hot. He's like... Uh, having some some heart palpitations but doesn't want the saxons who are held at bay for you know we're, we're in the golden age of king arthur now so it's a time of peace but the saxons are just sort of waiting for king arthur to die so they can take over britain so king arthur doesn't want the saxons to see that he's ill so he wants to you know hide out in the country for a while to say he's hunting and he, so he goes to the uh, chateau the castle of his right hand man his knight, Sir Edmund, who's engaged to his daughter, Catherine. And of course, this is a completely invented character. King Arthur has never had a daughter named Catherine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we needed a romantic lead. No mother. <laughs> yeah, there's no talk of who Catherine's mother may have been. But uh, yeah, so King Arthur has a daughter named Catherine, and she's engaged to Sir Edmund. And they're going to his castle to get some R&R. And um, turns out, that Edmund is a double dealer, a sort of Mordred type who has made a deal with the Saxons that he will take over the kingdom if they help him. And, uh, you know, the plan is for them to kill Arthur once they get to Edmund's castle. But on the way there, a sort of Robin Hood type figure named Robert Marshall attempts to uh, rob them. He you know, shoots, he's sitting in a tree and, and shoots some arrows saying, Give me uh, 20 gold pieces or this next one is going through your heart. And Arthur loves this guy immediately. He says, oh, here's this guy. He's a good guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. Just a simple thief. Just wanted a little bit of money. And, uh, oh, you know these woods. Why don't you help us get to Sir Edmund's castle? So uh, for whatever reason, uh, Arthur decides that he trusts this thief who only steals for himself. They, they make a point of saying he doesn't steal from the rich and give to the poor. He just steals for himself because he's the poor one. And uh, and anyway, so they go to the castle and this whole um, scheme to have the Saxons kill Arthur starts to happen. But luckily, Robert Marshall is there. He finds out beforehand that Edmund is bad and what's going to happen. And uh, they still manage to kill King Arthur. But before he dies, Arthur tells Robert, you have to get my daughter Catherine to Merlin. And then he dies. And so they don't know where Merlin is. So the rest of the movie is trying to find Merlin, figure out where he is. And there's uh, you know, some twists and turns. And Catherine doesn't trust Robert. First, you know, she thinks that he's the one who killed her father because he, the Edmund tried to frame him as the murderer. But it's really just the setup where the, the lovers have to hate each other at the beginning. But eventually they come together at the end and they find Merlin. They meet up with... Uh, they're not called the Merry Men, but there's a, a blacksmith who's very much like Little John. They have thrilling adventures, and, and a few number of men manage to overthrow the, the Saxon invaders. And yeah, it's just, a, it's just a fun little adventure movie that has only a slight resemblance to actual King Arthur tales. But I actually found this to be the most entertaining of any of these movies. Just, you know, it's completely insubstantial, and it would appall any... Arthurian scholar with with how much it strays from the established legends but uh 
you know, it's it's a it's a treat. It's a fun little movie. It's good for the kiddies. It's not as uh, as gruesome as the Magic Sword, and it doesn't have all that sappy romantic melodrama that uh, Lancelot and Guinevere has. I kind of like this one. It's definitely nothing special. Don't seek it out or anything. But if you want a silly little adventure movie, then in the spirit of Robin Hood, check out Siege of the Saxons. Yeah, I thought it was pretty funny. It kind of reminded me of like a, an episode of Xena. <laughs> <laughs> you mean how it brings in elements of all sorts of different things and puts them in the yeah. same universe? <laughs> it's got the King of Thieves. It's got a king. It's got a lady dressed like a man. Jeanette Scott was actually pretty cute in this as Catherine. Yeah, I don't know her, but she was definitely appealing. And Ronald Lewis as Robert Marshall was also pretty dashing. He kind of looks like a blonde slightly chubbier Errol Flynn, I guess. But he was charming. He did some good stunts. It seemed like he was doing his own stunt work, and he, you know, he's jumping off horses and that sort of thing. You know who he reminded me of? He reminded me of Steve Irwin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but okay. He looks like him. He looks like Steve Irwin. And they're good. They have good chemistry, the two of them, and you want them, you want those kids to make it. You've got a scene with Excalibur, so the the myth behind that sword comes into play. When Edmund tries to declare himself king of Britain, he can't pull the the sword out of Excalibur's scabbard, so they all know that he's a a fraud and not meant to be king, and Catherine can, and, and she becomes queen of Britain, which sounds a lot more uh, feminist than this movie actually is. I mean, she manages to exert some power and, and be convincing in sort of a queenly role. But she's also, you know, all she really cares about is making goo-goo eyes at, uh, at Robert. And it's sort of sad to be queen because she can't just be housewife to this Prince of Thieves. She tries to order him to marry her, at least. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, actually, I think so. Here's the thing. I actually like this one, too. And part of the reason I liked it is that I think that what this does get right, even though it completely perverts the story, even though I guess you could arguably say that that's just about as Arthurian as anything else is to fluff it up with whatever crap you want to add in. But it does focus so much on the characters that it actually kind of works. It, I mean, Arthur, again, is kind of a nothing character. He's very like, I'm a man. And then he kills over and dies. But, you know, old Robert Hood, he's at least charming and a bit of a rogue. He has something going for him. And, and as you said, yeah, like Catherine, you know, she gets to dress like a boy in hiding and have a personality other than just girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she gets a little bit. There's like a, a couple of good, like just scenes of them bantering or, you know, trying to fool guards and to, you know that oh she's a deaf mute and and we're trying to bring her to to pray to the whatever the monastery and she's definitely a boy don't don't worry about it (laughs) (laughs) and then that scene in the monastery that it was actually pretty interesting um where they line up all the monks against the wall and they shoot them with arrows that was kind of violent that's how you know the saxons are bad because they would do something like that it was pretty rough, though, like because it's this, this interesting scene where, you know, they're trying to leave. He's trying to leave her with uh, the monastery in order to go find Merlin. And uh, one of the monks tells the Saxons and then they come and well, they're not even Saxons, right? They're just pretending to be Saxons. 
Oh, I don't... <laughs> they're like it's Edmund. It like Edmund. Half of Edmund's crew is pretending to be Saxons so they can blame the Saxons, and then he's calling the Saxons later on to come and show up and have a big end battle. Which okay, the best thing that I read about this movie, and I'm gonna be straight up honest with you guys, I saw this on Wikipedia, and it links to like a Starlog magazine issue 152. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the battle scenes in this film are all stock footage that was reused from other movies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they actually used a lot of the set from Lancelot and Guinevere in this movie. And like they, they like this movie was made mostly because they were like, ah, like we have all this stock footage. Why not make a, <laughs> we have these costumes. And it's funny because I, I read this before I watched the film. And as I finally watched that final, that big battle in the end, you can see that they reused the same shots multiple times <laughs> in the same sequence. It's like five minutes of just repeated footage <laughs> with no recognizable characters <laughs> until the end. I did notice that the armies, you know, looked a lot like the battle scenes that were done a lot better in Lancelot and Guinevere, like Arthur's knights have that same like silver and blue. But uh, yeah, I would say that they made a pretty damn good movie out of a bunch of old costumes and stock footage. And I would take this over Lancelot and Guinevere any day. Yeah. I mean, this was fun. It was, it was dumb, but it was fun. And it, I, I got a real kick out of watching the same guy fall off a tower eight times in one battle. So There was so much falling off of towers. It's just the same dude. Now that, now that you mentioned that, that is, I do remember <laughs> thinking that was pretty absurd. <laughs> Great film. So that's the end of the non-musical portion of our program. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I don't know if it gets better or worse from there. The next film is actually The Sword in the Stone from 1963. The Disney movie directed by Wolfgang Reitherman. I never saw this film. No. Had you? Yeah. I think it must have been in like the Disney vault when I was <laughs> a child or something. I think it's just not all that fondly remembered, so it's not one that gets revived as often as some of the others. I definitely remember asking my mother at some point, probably when we were in Disney World and you can there is a sword in the stone that you can pull. That won't come out unless you're like a f adorable five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> then suddenly, magically, it comes out. Okay, whatever. And yeah, I remember asking her, like, what? Have you even seen this movie? And she was like, eh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of enjoyed it watching it now as an old fart because, like, there's a, such a clear mid-century style that, like, you can see in the artwork on this. And I also didn't realize, actually that my favorite in the credits it said bill pete wrote the story and i love bill pete who's bill pete he was an, an artist that did stuff for disney but he was also did stuff on his own he did the wump world 
I don't know that. <laughs> Children's <laughs> book. I had this autobiography of Bill Pete. It's an illustrated autobiography when I was growing up that I think my obviously my parents bought and I was obsessed with it. He does really cool art. And he I, I just like part of what was really great about it is that he talks about working for Disney and how it was really oppressive. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he had to leave it in order to like find himself truthfully, but it also like pays the bills. But anyhow, I just didn't I didn't know that. I like Bill Pete. The animation really is the the reason to see this film. There isn't much story wise to it. So I give Oh, but he wrote it? Never mind. I mean, he also did illustrations, but I think he got he got credit for writing this. I don't know. Uh, T.H. White wrote it. it. It follows the first book of Once and Future King pretty closely. Yes, that, that it does, which is basically that King Uthapendragon dies and then a sword is in a stone because he is childless. And uh, then the Dark Ages happen, according to this movie. And then... A young orphan named Wart goes out hunting with his older brother, Kay, and he mistakenly distracts him and the arrow gets launched into the forest. So he chases after the arrow. And meanwhile, Merlin is sitting in his hut talking to uh, Archimedes, his pet owl, and saying, like, Arthur's going to be here any minute. And then Arthur crashes into the house and Merlin says, great, let's start learning. <laughs> he takes him home. They say, Wart, get back to the kitchen and start cleaning everything. And Merlin says, no, we're going to learn lessons. And I'm going to turn you into an animal to learn lessons. So he turns him into a fish. And he turns him into a squirrel. And he turns him into a bird. And he turns him into a... Uh... Is that it? That might be all that Arthur turns into bunch of animals and then <laughs> and then there's a fight with madame mim oh yeah the Ma- madame mim who actually th white wrote out of when he released the once in future king but is included in his original version of the sword in the stone oh really i didn't know that i i thought it was completely invented for this movie no it's a it's apparently a thing at least for T.H. White. I don't know about old Mim before him. <laughs> We're going to have to turn to a scholar for that one. But um, but yeah, no, that's apparently not just some crap that Disney made up. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yep, she's a mean old witch. And then Merlin has to come save Arthur. And she challenges Merlin to like a wizard off. And they basically have to outsmart each other by turning into different types of animals that can eat one another. And she sets some ground rules that she immediately breaks. And Merlin outsmarts her by transforming into a germ and infecting her, which, you know, feels relevant. And then there is this tournament in London. And Sir Kay has to go down to London to win the tournament. And Wart Arthur is the, uh, you know, is his sword boy. And he forgets Kay's sword at the inn and then sees this like sword hanging out in the stone and he touches it and like the heavens open up and sing. And he's like, that's weird. And he just takes the sword and brings it to Kay. And then they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where'd you get that sword? And then everyone 
crowds around and they watch as Arthur puts the sword back in the stone. Nobody can pull it out and Arthur can take it out like no problem. And then it's ended and that's it. And then they're just like, he's the king. Yeah, it's a bit anticlimactic. I think that might be Way why anticlimactic. This, this isn't considered a, one of the great Disney classics because it is, it's beautifully animated and it loves animals. It's very Bambi-ish almost in, in that nature is so carefully observed in this movie. Like it's, you know, they're all anthropomorphized animals because it's Disney, but it also like just gets their biology and movements really right and it really cares about all that stuff that's the main appeal of this is just the animal love i guess yeah i mean like i liked that this was true to the best parts of arthur again you know that it cared a lot about character and wart and merlin and building up a relationship between these people and also focusing on arthur's relationship with everyone else in his life this movie is like it loves higher education. <laughs> it feels more like a commercial for going to college than it feels like King Arthur in a lot of ways. Like the whole movie is really about the benefits of education, which I kind of appreciate in a kid's movie. But the, the, my biggest issue is that it spends too much time waffling about repeating itself. You know, like I like the animal sequences, but I wish they were a bit more clever than just like a mean animal is eating a cute animal, which is what happens in every single one of them. In like the exact same beats, like the squirrels gets like its own little weird male female romance angle for squirrels. But I remember the book having like very specific lessons that Arthur learns from becoming each of these animals. And it really helps him later in life as a king, like he, uh, everything that he's learned. I mean, that I the only lesson that really comes through in this movie version is that uh, he learns how to be hetero and how to run away yeah he learns about how romance is annoying and it will potentially destroy his kingdom but uh it doesn't get into that specifically but you can read into that if you're a fan of king arthur but uh it does sort of get into the the idea of might doesn't equal right and it keeps coming back to this big fish eating little fish metaphor just because you're bigger doesn't mean you're better and I can, I'm smaller, but I can outsmart you. And if we want peace, we have to sort of turn the tables on this whole might versus right thing. And even that is dealt in a very sort of vague way in this movie. Merlin's all about this education, like you said, but you, it's, it's never really that clear what Arthur is learning from him. It's just fun to be different animals seems to be the the takeaway. Yeah, I kind of like it makes me wonder if it got really edited down to being more kid friendly or something. You know what I mean? Like it feels edited down. It feels very censored, which is funny because that squirrel sequence is really weird. But um, yeah, I mean, like I like I like the, the sort of nature learning stuff and I like that focus. I guess my other complaint is I think the music sucks. Like there's nothing that was memorable in here for me, but. Yeah, I assume there'd be at least one song that I remembered from this movie, but none of the songs stand out at all. I think the only song that I recognized was like the, oh, you know, the, the sword and the stone kind of song where it's like a chorus of angels singing it. Like that was the only thing. <laughs> and that was, you know, crummy, very 60s. But I love the little like 60s starburst kind of designs and like these sort of like touches of very early 60s art 
that was kind of shoved into this in a way like that was that was really fun. I mean, just this hand drawn animation of Disney, classic Disney, where you know so much care is put into every frame. It's just always a, a treat to watch, but would have been better if they dug a little deeper into what Arthur's all about. I think you can do that in a kid's movie. It's OK to throw some concepts at kids that go over their heads a little bit. Maybe they'll think about later in life, right? That's, I mean, those are the, my favorite kids things for sure. Like this is definitely, it's, it's not, it doesn't seem to have very much to say past the age of six or whatever. This would be very entertaining for somebody. I did notice that the voice acting was really awful for Arthur. (laughs) Did you notice that? There was a kind of a nostalgia to the voice acting that, so it didn't bother me too much. Like, I almost feel like that kid must have done other Disney characters because it's delivered in such a, like, this is what a 12-year-old boy Disney character sounds like. Well, apparently the voice actor went through puberty and Reitherman cast his sons to take over for various spots. So sometimes it's really terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And it's because his kids don't know how to act. Huh. I don't think I was paying close enough attention to really notice that. It really stuck out to me only because I thought, you know, Disney's usually quite good at voice acting. You know, like voice acting in general, I think is a very uh, disrespected profession, even though it really deserve it just deserves way more respect than it gets, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, like both in pay and just like in recognition, and Disney usually does a decent job, at least for hiring and, and being sincere about it. And I felt like the whole this whole thing felt very like off the cuff. Like it felt like they hadn't found themselves in a weird way, even though like, I don't This is 63. Like they'd had multiple smash hits that were totally fine. So that's what was weird. I don't know. This whole thing felt very weird. It felt like Disney didn't really know what they were doing here and then got cold feet halfway through. Yeah, it feels like half a movie. Yeah. But uh, it definitely is a masterpiece compared to the next animated kids movie that we watched uh, for this episode, which is Willie McBean and His Magic Machine from 1965. Feature-length film from Rankin and Bass, who did all those Christmas specials on TV that you've seen, you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Jack Frost and all that stuff. You know, those specials are all pretty charming, and this I actually found kind of charming too, in a way, but it doesn't, like, it just gets so exhausting at at feature length. They really should be only making half-hour specials. This is... It's about this kid, Willie, who has a big history test the next day that he doesn't want to study for because he thinks history is boring. But then Pablo, the talking monkey, comes through his window and says, we've got to save history because the mad doctor Rasputin von Rotten has created a time machine and he's going to go back in time and change history so that he's the most 
famous person who ever lived. So Willie happens to be a uh, sort of mechanical genius kid. So he can take the time machine plans that Pablo, the monkey that uh, Dr. Rasputin von Rotten taught how to talk and then tortured, kept in a cage. Pablo stole the plans and gave them to Willie and Willie created a time machine just in time for him to follow Von Rotten through time. First, they go to Von Rotten wants to be the quickest draw that ever lived. So he goes to beat uh, Buffalo Bill Cody in a in a gunfight. Um, but uh, Pablo and Willie managed to stop him from doing that. And uh, then there's a whole Christopher Columbus sequence. And then finally it gets to King Arthur because uh, Von Rotten wants to be the greatest king who ever lived. So he's going to pull the sword out of the stone instead of Arthur. And so Pablo and Willie get there in time to stop him. But we get a bit of time in King Arthur's court and you know, we meet Merlin and Arthur and Morgan Le Fay is this sort of French seductress. So we get this sort of very cartoonish, goofy version of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. This movie is, like, as, as I was saying, it's kind of charming for a while. It's got sort of that Rocky and Bullwinkle sense of humor where it's very self-referential. There is definitely some appalling racism in this movie. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> this whole Pop movie is racism. Yeah. But it's also such a time capsule. It's like... You know, I was actually happy to not see just a bunch of white people with swords for a change and to have like a bunch of white people pretending to be not white <laughs> to have a sexy Latin lover monkey who uh, <laughs> who chases after every female he that they encounter. Or... Oh, man, it's really like it, it's like <laughs> bad, like the I, the only one I'll do an impression of is is uh, Columbus. They have Christopher Columbus. And he sounds like Mario from <laughs> Nintendo. He's like, I'm a think I'm in a craze. I'm a don't got a boat. And you're like, what the hell? I thought Columbus was actually pretty funny in a Chico Mark sort of way. He was funny because it was ridiculous. <laughs> or Father Guido Sarducci. <laughs> Didn't you find it interesting that I mean, this is probably the most racist thing we've watched so far, and it's for children, like, explicitly. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about the fact that this is how you get 60s children, is that you show them, the, like, this. Like, you think, well, this is what kids want. Like, none of the adult, I mean, like, not none. Like, there's definitely, we've definitely watched some racist stuff, but this was, like, really insidious. <laughs> like, this was, like, there was one person who's chinese and it's actually a white guy pretending to be chinese you know voiced by a white guy and like singing a racist song and like you know it's like this is the stuff that everyone thought was okay to show children but like two adults kissing was like too much <laughs> yeah because racial stereotypes are funny right apparently i definitely cr i cringed through most of this and not just because of the racism which was really cringeworthy, but because of the length. <laughs> the length is grueling. The big problem is that it's such a repetitive story. So they go yeah. and, 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 you know, Von Rotten tries to do this thing, and then they go and stop him, and then he tries to do this other thing, and then they go and stop him. And, the, and each one of these sections has a song 
and the song never, you know, adds anything but length to each of these sequences. I mean, I guess the songs are kind of funny sometimes, but by the time you get to the singing dragon and the Arthur sequence, I had had more than enough of this movie. <laughs> The best part of the King Arthur sequence is when they have Morgan Le Fay show up and Willie is like, oh, you're so beautiful. And she's like, of course, like anyone who's an old witch is a fake. And she says, quote, why would any woman with magical powers let herself grow old and wrinkled? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, ah, legit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The only other woman you get in this movie is uh, King Tut's wife, who is mad at him because He's trying to build a monument to himself and not buying her pretty things. The King Tut sequence in which we see slaves being whipped <laughs> <laughs> in the background of like half of it. Like, what the hell? It's like like they're pulling all these stones and you have this little like stop animation guy whipping everyone. At the top. <laughs> like this was OK for a kid's movie. Oh, I have a note here. James Doohan does a voice in here somewhere he does and i couldn't i i think maybe he was one of the cavemen but i have to tell you that by the time the caveman sequence came around i was out (laughs) i don't remember how this ends i like my brain fell out of my head and my even my notes just stop it says cavemen and then nothing and then (laughs) the next movie i got some chuckles out of this actually it's just got such a frivolous take on history that i had to kind of laugh a little bit like it it gets so much of history just purposefully wrong it's not one of these sort of educational kids things where you're like oh if you're interested in this you can learn more no it it like intentionally throws all sorts of false things about these historical figures i mean not that king arthur is even a historical figure but they treat him as if he's a real person in the 1500s or something but uh you know and king tut Definitely didn't try and build pyramids, but of course he's the pharaoh that they go and visit. Yeah, I mean, it's Rocky and Bullwinkle. I was always a big fan of that, and and this reminded me of that. So I think it, you know, there's some some nostalgia there. That's probably the only reason I give this movie more credit than it deserves. And the nostalgia of just the Rankin and Bass style of claymation. I enjoy seeing that. Yeah, I mean, like, if this is, if you took Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, but make it really explicitly racist, (laughs) (laughs) which came out a year after this, right? In in 64 for Rudolph. This is 65. So Rudolph, if that was 64, was the year before this. Oh, okay. I can't imagine that anybody would have given them license to make a feature length film if they hadn't already made Rudolph. You're right. I thought we were still in our 63. (laughs) Yeah. No, we finally advanced past 1963. Yeah, and as far as how authentically Arthurian this movie is, it's got nothing but some character names that you're familiar with. You know, they're in Camelot, and there's a sword and a stone that needs to get pulled out, and just the the favorite touchstones, and, and then they just use it as a setup for comic hijinks. You know what I could actually draw a connection to, even though I don't think Merlin's here, is that there's like a... A line where they're like, I'll put you on television. It's like a crystal ball with commercials. <laughs> but I feel like that is just like the way that Merlin would have talked. <laughs> yeah, well, that's definitely T.H. White's Merlin. But yeah, I don't think there's m- much more we need to say about this thing. And it's about time we get to this movie that's been hanging over us like a dark cloud. Camelot. <laughs> Camelot. 
sounds a bit bizarre. 1967, directed by Joshua Logan, starring Richard Harris, Vanessa Redgrave, Franco Nero, David Hemmings. I really like Camelot, and apparently you hate Camelot. I thought maybe I'd seen some of this before. I definitely thought I knew some of the music from it, and I didn't. And uh, yeah, it just really bummed me out. It's just so goofy for the first half. I don't know. Go you 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 say what you want to say. You def- you defend this movie for a while, and maybe you'll convince me that I didn't have as miserable a time watching it as I actually did. Well, you know, here's the thing is that the first time I watched this not terribly long ago for the first time and I had a sort of similar reaction. I wasn't terribly impressed with it. And then the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. And then the more the music started to get stuck in my head. If ever I would leave you is definitely the best song in the entire film. And then it's just downhill from there. <laughs> like there really isn't much else. Like I, I like Camelot. Like I like the, the sort of opening song cause it's funny. And I like, um, I like Guinevere's bloodlust song about, um, who'll take me to the fair. Yeah. Where she's just desperate to like see Lancelot be murdered in like increasingly more violent ways. That's a lot of fun. But for the plot, we know we know the plot of Camelot. Come on, we've already said it three times in this episode alone. It is about King Arthur who's preparing to marry Guinevere, and he has a little flashback to when Merlin, his childhood mentor, brought him up and taught him about the ways of the world and talking to the animals and all that. And then he runs into Guinevere on the on the road on the snowy road. And she expresses, she doesn't know who he is because he's like hiding in a tree, just like Robert Hood. Mm -hmm. And um, she says that she's worried about getting married. And he says, oh, but Camelot's such a wonderful place. And actually, you know, you're going to love it here because he's totally smitten with her because she is Vanessa Redgrave. She, of course, realizes later on that he is indeed King Arthur. They get married. A couple years later, Arthur decides, like, let's have a round table for noble knights and let's build up this dream of Camelot even more. And so he makes a call across England and around the world and says, you know, come, if you contain these chivalrous qualities, come and join up my round table. And then that's where Lancelot says, c'est moi, and, and runs all the way to England where he mistakenly knocks King Arthur off of his horse and then apologizes profusely when he realizes that that's his hero that he almost killed. And Guinevere immediately hates this guy. She can't stand him because he's a total square. Meanwhile, she's out there partying in the lusty month of May with the rest of the knights who are all like down for a little like hippies, 60s, peace and love style picnicking. And so she tries to get Sir Lionel, Sir Sagramore, and Sir Dinadan to kill him. <laughs> Straight up kill him. She says, uh, you know, if you want to take me to the fair, you have to bash and smash and crash and run right through him and open wide him and all of that. And uh, he, of course, defeats all three of them. And he critically wounds Sir Dinadan. And everyone comes rushing over and they're horrified. And 
King Arthur immediately like he's like he's dead. <laughs> and then Lancelot grabs him and he pleads to the Lord and says he can't be dead. He won't I won't let him be dead and he lays hands and miraculously Dinadan is is alive and in that exact moment Guinevere decides that she is completely in love with him because she sees his, some humility and she sees him crying over this man that, that he could have killed. And he of course didn't mean to kill. And he sees her in that moment and they immediately fall in love. And he tells his squire, he's like, yo, I said, I was never going to bone anyone, but like, <laughs> this is, this is getting rough. And meanwhile, Arthur kind of finds out he, you know, very quickly Arthur realizes here I have my right hand man, Lancelot, this man that I love and trust with my life and who believes in me and believes in my dream more than absolutely anybody else and, and would kill for me and die for me. And then I have Guinevere, the other love of my life, who I just she's the perfect woman and she's smart and she's sexy and she's everything I want. And then I have myself and. I know they love me, but they also love each other. And that's the sort of love that I, you know, I'm not getting and he's jealous, but then he realizes, why should I be jealous when I'm trying to build this utopia? I need to, I need to be beyond jealousy. I need to accept that I, I am receiving love from both of them, even if it's not the way that I think it is. And I'm going to evolve. I'm going to become, you know, a true King and, and realize that this is just, it's going to be how it is and, and it's fine. And I'll look the other way. A true free loving sixties dude. Yeah. And then there's an intermission and we're back and Guinevere and Lancelot have been secretly getting together and uh, boning and all of these knights are noticing, everyone's noticing, and they keep getting, the knights keep getting banished because they keep trying to accuse Lancelot, and Lancelot duels them, and he wins, and he never wants to kill them, so they end up being banished from the kingdom. So everything's starting to crumble because Arthur will not acknowledge the fact that these two are, you know, shacking up, and everyone's scandalized except for Arthur, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to lose his best friend and his wife. So, you know, he, he just keeps going. And the other part of it is that Mordred shows up randomly, which is uh, played by Hemmings. And he is Arthur's illegitimate son from a previous Arthurian tale. <laughs> <laughs> and he arrives and he's like this totally weaselly guy. Uh, you know, he's very anti, you know, Arthur says, well, you could be a knight of mine. And he literally laughs in his face and he's like, dude, have you seen me? I'm not going to be a knight. What are you talking about? But uh, he's a, he's away with words and he likes to sow discord. And so he runs around spreading worse rumors and, you know, being the guy that's like, huh, isn't it weird that Arthur thinks it's cool for Lancelot to break the rules, but when you break the rules, uh, but, you know, it's like, he's that guy. He Iago's them. Exactly. And and everything starts to crumble around them. And of course, eventually Lancelot's like, I have to get out of here because I'm I'm destroying the thing that I love the most, which is Camelot in this, you know, in, in my king. But yet he says it's impossible, you know, if ever I would leave you, it wouldn't be in summer. See, I'm gonna be the first female Robert Goulet impersonator. Are you cool with that? 
That's fine with me, as long as you can make your musical numbers more exciting than the ones in this movie. Knowing how in summer I never would go. Whatever, I don't remember the lyrics. Um, anyhow, uh, and but eventually they get caught. Mordred sets them up. He tells Arthur, "Oh, you know, why don't you? I know you're you're being you're stressed out. Why don't you go hang out in Merlin's Wood for a bit for the night? You know, if you really trust him, you'd leave him alone for one night." And of course, Arthur knows that he's up to something, but he says, I have to, it's, you know, it's true. I have to trust them. And then at the last minute realizes, nah, this was just, this was Mordred setting me up, but it's too late. He sets up Guinevere and Lancelot to get caught. Oh yeah. Meanwhile, Arthur has been trying to set up the idea of uh, a court of law that people have to prove, they have to provide proof of Lancelot cheating with Guinevere. And so accusations are not enough. They need to have a, hard cold proof and so mordred by catching them trapping them in a room and having every single night in the room with them they have proof and so blah 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 lancelot gets chased out guinevere gets tied to the stake there is a good scene in which everyone knows that lancelot's gonna come and save guinevere and even arthur's sitting there like where is where's lancelot he's gonna save her like come on and then finally he saves her and yeah, I mean, like it kind of ends with like this idea of Arthur now having to go to battle against Lancelot and against uh, the Saxons who are coming in that Mordred called in and like everything's just fallen to, to pieces and the sky is gray and cloudy. And then he sees a little boy, Tom of Warwick, which is a reference, of course, to Sir Thomas Mallory. And he says, I came all this way because I believed in you. And he says, that's, you know what? now i don't feel so depressed and that's the end of it what don't you like about that movie the songs are not that great i didn't care for them but even more than the songs themselves it was like i had the same problem with with my fair lady like the songs are okay but like present them on screen in an interesting way yes movie just grinds to a halt every time there's a song and it's just done in such a frivolous way. The, this, the whole first half of this movie is just so silly. Like everybody's just so happy and like lovey-dovey and it's so tedious. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It's just not what I want to see from a King Arthur movie. Like, you know, there should be some degree of gravity to all of this stuff. Like in the second half, it does sort of get into Arthur's dilemmas in a, in an, sort of interesting way like and it's the only movie of these six that actually sort of gets into what's interesting about arthur his whole idea of you know how you know he kind of has to choose between his kingdom and his wife and to be a great king he has to put his personal feelings aside and just do what's best for his people and his inability to sort of navigate between the two things. And, and that's, that's, what's interesting about Arthur. And this is the first movie that, that talks about any of that stuff at all, but it, it also just throws in a bunch of songs that don't move any of that along at all. And Joshua Logan, he's a terrible director. Like I know that this movie was chopped up in its original performances to sort of, get the story down to a a manageable length, but like, it feels like it's even more chopped up in the movie version. Like the editing is 
terrible. Like no cuts seem to match. It's like he doesn't know how to shoot the coverage he needs for for shots to match up or something. But it just was so jarring all the time, the, the way that this movie was put together. He just doesn't have a good sense of what entertains me, I think. I, 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 I think I, a I, lot of my problems with this movie are, are a lot like the problems you have with Paint Your Wagon. Joshua Logan's virtual remake the following year, or maybe, two, I don't know, 68 or 69, but, uh, you know, this classic menage a trois story. And I actually really like Paint Your Wagon, and it's the only Joshua Logan thing I've ever really enjoyed. But uh, you had similar trouble trying to explain why you hated Paint Your Wagon so much. No, I have very specific grievances with that movie. The problem is that when we did the first episode of this podcast, I actively refused to rewatch it. (laughs) (laughs) So I couldn't be specific. I will one day rewatch it and then we can really talk about what what sucks about that movie. But um, or maybe I love it now. Who knows? I have no idea. I'm with you, though. The, The thing that really sucks about this movie, and it's funny because it stuck out way more to me the first time around than it did this time around. Like this time around, I just like love this. I just like, I don't know. It hit me. I Maybe I was just I'm feeling like uh, introspective or something enough that like it really like got me emotional this time around. But the first time it is like when they start to sing, everything just stops. Nobody's moving. They're just sitting there singing. And, you know, they, they don't have Robert Goulet. They have a guy who is actually dubbing over Franco Nero for singing. And Vanessa Redgrave doesn't, she's, she does, she's charming, but she's not a singer. And um, she's certainly no Julie Andrews. And uh, Richard Harris is just, you know, he's doing the, the speak singing thing. So. <laughs> the Rex Harrison. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I definitely get it. I don't know. Like the, the music sort of grew on me over time. I'm surprised that this was a hit, though, on music alone. I was just going to talk about how square it is. Like, it's clear <laughs> yeah. in 1967 that this is the end of an era. Like, this is the end of big, overblown musicals. I can't imagine any young people could connect to this at all. This is just a bloated spectacle. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, here's the thing. I the, the connection here is love, and that's what's so nice about it. I love Arthur in this as a character and Richard Harris totally manages to walk the line between dork and like true empath. (laughs) And, and that is what's so appealing. Like he is very appealing. Actually, I think he met his wife because she fell in love with him as King Arthur. Uh, She was significantly younger than him, Richard Harris, which PS I've been to Limerick and there's a big statue of Richard Harris dressed as Arthur in downtown like across the street from like a 99 cent store (laughs) but okay i think like the camelot song in the beginning it's easy to dismiss as corny but i just love the way that it's used because what it's being used in in that scene is that he's seducing her through charm and through optimism and isn't that what love is anyhow bart isn't love just spinning a dream narrative between two people i thought love was wanting to get it on I think this idea that everything is true in the world if you believe it is true. And if you and your partner both believe something together, then you can create a brand new world. You can, you know, that's love opens up doors for that. Suddenly anything is possible in that sense. And 
you know, this like dream of like improving instead of destroying and that the Knights of the Round Table are made as an extension of like optimism and love. And, you know, they debate and they make laws and they plan improvements. They're building love. They're building, you know, he keeps saying he wants to be civilized. He's building civilized society. But what's great about this too is that they never talk about like, it's not about religion. It's about this like idea of being fair. And yet they're still tethered by certain parts of society that they can't you know it's like they they're they're thinking above and beyond but they can't get far enough away from their the structure that they're still in which is you know knights and war and you know something and, and that's really what holds them back and that's like the the tragedy of all of this is that it's not that arthur was wrong it's that you know you can't you can't be as progressive as you want to be when you still live in a society that has such strict boundaries, you know, and, and you can be okay with maybe like Lancelot and Guinevere messing around, but you know, if everyone else around you isn't completely, you know, like they're, they're, you know, not forward thinking enough, then, you know, inevitably it's going to crumble, which I think is a real tragedy. Like it's like very, I think the ending of this is really, it's depressing. It's like, here he is like, building this brand new world and, and like inevitably it's like just crumbles because of human error and then at the same time born from the born from the ashes is you know more hope and i think that like that as a as a concept is just very interesting and it's sad and it's also like you know it really speaks to a lot of what these arthurian tales end up doing you know this idea of like you know to strive is the, is the most important part it's not about the achievement it's about the striving those themes are great. I find all that stuff really interesting. And that's what T.H. White saw in the Arthurian tales and put into Once and Future King. And those are the you know interesting things that I guess Alan Lerner saw in the Once and Future King. And he you know, was smart to bring those themes together into the you know his book for this stage play. But it's all sort of overwhelmed by this exaggerated emotion that doesn't play at all none of it resonates i actually really like the cast i think richard harris and vanessa redgrave and you know david hemmings is fun even franco nero is he has got some good scenes like when he tears up over the night that he thinks he's killed like he's good he's a good lancelot but every single one of these actors i feel like they're just floundering i feel embarrassed for all of them in this movie because they're like trying their best to make something substantial out of this piece of fluff. Like they've just covered the bones of Arthur with all this fluff and it just makes me furious and I find it really hard to watch. I think there's a certain Broadway aspect to this that maybe is not vibing with you. The Broadway aspect doesn't bother me. I, I like that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I don't know. I think that even even with all of that given, you know, you get enough from these characters and from this cast. Like, I love Vanessa Redgrave in this, besides the fact that she's, like, stunningly beautiful in this. Like, unfair makes me a little bit angry. She's, like, way too beautiful. <laughs> I love her, like, bloodlust. I love that she has this real, you know, like, you can see why he falls in love with her, and it's not just for her looks. You know, that she's a little bit innocent, but she has this, like, sort of underlying cruelty, but she's also very open to Arthur's sweetness. Like, you know, this they're, like, a good, a good mix. Like, he's always this ever-optimist, and she's, like, a bit of a, more of a realist and, and more of a cynical person. 
And then Lancelot is just faith incarnate. I mean, this is a man of purity in his word. And then I think, you know, the, the other thing that that's intriguing is just how in love with Arthur he is. And I think that is something that is just so necessary. As I said earlier, it's so necessary to this love triangle and it really doesn't work if you don't show Lancelot's love for Arthur and it doesn't have to be romantic. It can just be the fact that like his whole life is literally devoted to Arthur. <laughs> he's here because he's here for Arthur and like, you know, then for him to turn around and fall in love with his wife is such a, you know, he feels so terrible about it but he's also still being true to himself like i i just find all of that i don't know all of that comes through so clearly for me in this and you know that again that scene of um arthur talking to himself which is very stagey i mean like and and i get that like i think that this could have been shot in a way that at least would have enhanced visually what was happening while still keeping it as stagey you know like the scene in which he says here I have my round table and he's talking to himself and it's a very clear monologue about how, you know, I know that they're cheating on me. And, you know, he says, is it civilized to destroy the thing I love to love myself? Most of all, what of their pain can passion be selected? Is there any doubt of their devotion to me in our table? Compassion is not weakness. Violence is not strength. You know, like it, it's a great monologue. <laughs> <laughs> it's just good like I, you know like it, it, it i guess maybe part of the appeal of this entire film to me is that like it's like seeing the stage play and i like that for 67 i'm with you it's dodgy i mean this was written in 59 came out in 1960 and it's way more early 60s but i do think that they did an okay job with like these sort of throwing in a couple of bizarre hippie scenes that kind of works because, you know, Arthur is really this sort of kind of pagan thing at the end of the day, even though it's not meant to be, but it is. Yeah, it's super Christian. I don't know. I will say that Camelot is the only one of these movies that attempts to tackle what's interesting about the Arthurian legends. And maybe that's what, made me so upset <laughs> was that finally here's the stuff that's interesting like you're finally dealing with with some you know these these great important themes and then you just make such a unentertaining film out of it i mean as dopey as siege of the saxons is it's an entertaining little movie this is just a slog from beginning to end and i think if it weren't you know, if it were about nothing that I cared about, then maybe I would have a different take on it. But because I sort of, I want, <laughs> I want my King Arthur presented to me in an intriguing way and in a, in a way that sparks my imagination. The fact that this movie completely fails at it is, I, I guess that's my big problem with it. I think you have to spend some time with the soundtrack. That is possible. If I grow to love the songs, then I could probably watch this again and, and enjoy it. But I'm in no rush to sit through these three hours again. <laughs> <laughs> I think it goes by kind of quick. So uh, what do we conclude about this? I, I feel like we needed to do this episode to get some uh, insight into you know this fabled Camelot of the 60s. But uh, I don't feel like I've come away from watching these movies, uh, knowing knowing anything more about the era that inspired them and was inspired by them. I think that it kind of does come back to that quote from 
Jackie Kennedy and this idea that, you know, history is, is full of heroes and, you know, if you believe in heroes, then you have an idealistic view of history and, you know, and, and, and that's worth something, even if history wasn't ideal. And I think that in a lot of ways, you know, that clearly was, you know, from the early sixties until the end of the sixties where everyone thought society was crumbling and everyone was in, it was in upheaval and, and, uh, you know, and, and of course like JFK being shot was really like already was the big crack to, uh, leading down to, uh, you know, all of the protests and at the end of the sixties, but, you know, I think that there is something to be said in a way about how we view the sixties now, you know, like, especially now that we're getting a lot more, uh, media and films that, that have been coming out based around the sixties and have a big push for conservatism and in, in our government, uh, that is trying to hark back to the idea of when times were great in the past. And, uh, you know, like, I think that there is a there's a lesson to be learned from Camelot in that sense that what we thought was great never actually existed. True greatness exists in in the minds of those who who want to will it into being and and it doesn't exist without everyone being on the same page and that's impossible. So you got to take it with a grain of salt really. Like I don't think we should abandon the idea of striving towards something excellent. But uh, I think we have to acknowledge that we will never achieve it. Yeah. I mean, in, in every incarnation of King Arthur, there's this idea that here's a king who's created a golden age. This is, you know, he's, he created a utopia that every uh, nation in the world should be striving to achieve. And when he dies at the end of the story and... Britain is covered in darkness again. The idea is that King Arthur will come again. We'll we'll see another golden age. He'll he'll return, maybe not in a messianic sort of way, but in a like, you know, somebody will will capture his spirit, will reinvent, will accomplish what he was able to accomplish again. And that's sort of the the appeal of the Arthur myth and to connect the Kennedy years with King Arthur and sort of say, oh, Kennedy is dead, but he'll live again. Somebody else will bring us a, you know, a new golden age. Hopefully someone a lot better than Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's so easy to look back at those three years and see that it wasn't nearly the, the golden age that it was made out to be. But, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of people were really hopeful during those years, and uh, and he he definitely represented a uh, sort of coming together in s- certain ways of the uh, the American people, a sort of uh, progressive spirit. But you know, the the myth is more powerful than the, the reality. But I can see why, as the '60s progressed and the Vietnam War was uh, was dragging on, that there was this idea of uh, wanting to return to a golden age that never even really existed. And so, yeah, I can see the appeal of the story to the people of the time. I just want to know what happened to the Holy Grail. It took Monty Python to bring uh, that key part of the Arthur legend back into the story. It's n- it's not dealt with anywhere in any of these stories. The Holy Grail is the most boring part. <laughs> well, I find actually the Lance, like reading about Lancelot, I find him to be the most boring character on the planet because he's Mr. He's so I, good. I, that, that Christian 
righteousness that that Lancelot embodies drives me absolutely up the wall. It's because it's the sort of like, what's wrong? No, I can't tell you. Like all of the drama has to do with the fact that Lancelot just won't like it. Like <laughs> he just won't face up to shit. He keeps being like, if that's how you think, then that is how it is. And it's like, no, dude, just like stand up for yourself like once. But no, he has to be the like, if that's the way you feel about it, then I will I will banish myself in search of the Holy Grail for the rest of my life. And it's like, oh, my God. And then we have to watch him as he Holy Grails all around. Actually, you know what? The thing that I really got out of this episode is seeing every single movie that came together to then produce Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah. And that was thrilling. It's true. Yeah. There's so Camelot in particular, like I could see those guys (laughs) sitting there watching this movie and just wanting to tear it apart. And so much of that makes it into Monty Python and the Holy Grail. We're knights of the round table. We dance whenever we're able. We do routines and choreos. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.